from the Partnership for Environment and Disaster Risk Reduction, this is Talks for Action, a podcast about how we can work together with nature to build resilience against disasters and climate change. Talks for Action will bring you on a journey to highlight how nature is playing an important role from the climate talks at COP26 in Glasgow to the global platform for disaster risk reduction next year. Each Talks for Action episode will focus on different ways that nature-based solutions contribute to increasing disaster and climate resilience. You will hear a wide range of perspectives from around the world on how nature is being applied as a solution to the pressing climate and disaster issues we see today, from voices from the field to humanitarian perspectives and UN climate advisors. On your commute to work, your morning run or over a cup of tea, listen in and learn something new about how to work with nature in addressing one of our most pressing issues today, the climate and disaster emergency. Today is the International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction, which we are celebrating by launching a new podcast series, Talks for Action. The theme of this day is international cooperation for developing countries to reduce their disaster risk and disaster losses. Thus, for our first podcast, we have invited two guests from the humanitarian sector to talk about how they work with nature to help build resilience in developing countries. Our two guests are Nini Ikala-Niemann from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies and Anton Yeur from the Swiss Red Cross. So hello to, to both of you. Really nice to have you um, on our first podcast series today. Um, so I would like to know if one of you would like to start us off with um, some of the reasons why the humanitarian community is getting more interested in nature-based solutions. Yes, thanks, Natalie, and thank you very much for this opportunity to speak today on, on the launch of the podcast series. Um, well, I think in, with regards to that question, at the Red Cross and the humanitarian sector at large, we're really increasingly seeing and recognising the importance of moving from approaches that are really focused on the immediate response to disasters and crises, more towards disaster risk reduction, anticipation, and increasingly recognizing the importance of considering future resilience as part of humanitarian work. And within this context, nature-based solutions provides quite a unique approach to resilience as it integrates environment and climate change agendas into humanitarian work, uh, and it brings precisely this kind of resilience perspectives to it, both before, during, and after disasters. Um, and Nature-based solutions really as a concept perhaps came more from the development field and this strong discussion of how nature-based solutions can provide solutions to societal challenges. Um, however, many of these benefits that come from addressing nature-based solutions and these challenges we're addressing are really pertinent for humanitarian work as well. So whether we're talking about disaster risk reduction, um, climate change adaptation, and we're increasingly seeing that slow onset events such as drought are very much um, disasters that the humanitarian community is dealing with. Um, health, again, something that's a real priority to the humanitarian sector. Um, and perhaps most tangibly um, throughout the disaster cycle, the importance of food and water security. And that's something where nature-based solutions can provide something um, 
food security before a disaster and really some quite quick solutions as well, for example, through sustainable agriculture within um, humanitarian emergency operations as well. Um, and when we talk about disaster risk reduction specifically, well, then we're really seeing how um, nature-based solutions address multiple parts of a disaster equation. So they can help us um, reduce exposure, reduce um, the hazard itself, as well as increasing resilience of dependent communities. So um, that's also something that, that um, makes it very appealing to the humanitarian sector. And, and so whether we're, for example, looking at restoring mangroves as a way that protects communities from storm surges, or we're reforesting slopes to reduce the likelihood of landslides happening, or we're looking um, at sustainable agriculture as something that increases resilience of, of communities and provides income and food security. So these are all really ways of how um, nature-based solutions address this new type of thinking within the humanitarian sector and, and can really be relevant before, during and after disasters. Uh, yeah, great. So I can really uh, see, you know, through how you're working with nature, you can really help improve livelihoods uh, before and after um, a disaster hits. I think uh, another thing that, you know, I, I was thinking when you were talking about this, and maybe Anton, this is something you'd like to answer, is then how do you see or what do you feel is the link between uh, humanitarian aid, uh, which often comes from international sources, and disaster risk reduction. Yeah, thank you, Natalie, and thank you also for inviting me to this uh, podcast. Um, I see there um, uh, really a conceptual link. Uh, humanitarian aid and DRR are together with uh, recovery, basic elements of the disaster risk management cycle and reflect pre and post disaster activities. And in that sense, DRR and humanitarian aid are intrinsically linked by the hazardous event that we want to prevent, mitigate or prepare for on the one hand through DRR and that we respond to with humanitarian aid. And this link is direct and has very practical consequences. What we invest in DRR, we can save in humanitarian aid. And although we do not really have clear figures, Sometimes we read of a ratio of one to five, sometimes one to seven, one being a, a Swiss franc or a dollar or a euro spent uh, in DRR that can save um, five or seven um, in um, equivalent money in, in um, humanitarian aid. Um, in the end, these figures are not so important because we do have overwhelming evidence that investment in DRR pays off, above all in terms of life saved and livelihoods protected, and not only in money invested. Well, thank you. That's a very compelling uh, answer, uh, Anton. And uh, maybe uh, from your perspective and your experience and some of the work you do, would you like to give us some examples of what type of nature-based solutions activities you, you have been undertaking? We are. Um, or nature-based solutions or activities are part of um, the support of the Swiss Red Cross in Haiti and Honduras. Um, that's where we have most um, experience. And in both countries, it's in the context of hilly landscapes that have been deforested, usually in an uncoordinated way. And that in turn caused problems to the communities and people. 
for instance, through soil erosion, erosion and the risk of landslides, or um, insufficient water retention and the risk of droughts or temporary droughts. In these contexts, different measures are implemented. All are community-based with a focus on ecosystem-based DRR at a rather small scale, micro watersheds, for example. And we call them soil bioengineering measures. So um, as uh, examples, um, V-shaped catchment fences, for instance, through using isote, the isote in, in, in Honduras, which is a yucca plant, to stabilize gullies and prevent soil sediments from being removed by uh, surface rainwater runoff, contour planting or terracing to prevent channel formation and erosion of topsoil and retain shallow landslides, drainage for scenes to prevent the saturation of the soils and the formation of incision due to surface runoff and contribute to slope stabilization, and um, reforestation to protect the water catchment areas of micro basins in order to provide drinking water and um, um, to prevent shallow landslides. Those are um, typical um, activities that we implement together with the communities. And um, we have noted a similar impact in both uh, country, country contexts. The measures provide multiple benefits, such as homestead protection, restoration of productive land, health, food security, sometimes income generation. And the measures are low cost, use locally available plant material, and are usually of easy maintenance. And because of that, they are self-propelling, and we noted a high level of replication in the communities. But, <laughs> I have to say, but the practices are not really low-tech, huh? and sometimes they were not always replicated with due diligence. Huh? And um, to ensure quality and continuity of uh, these practices, for instance, in Haiti, uh, we trained, equipped, and certified des agents de mitigation, mitigation agents. And we have seen the effects very quickly during the various lockdown moments that we experienced in, the la in, in, in 2020 in Haiti due to socio socio-political unrest or also COVID-19. And on several occasions, we were forced to temporarily close our project office and uh, to interrupt our activities. And those mitigation agents, they were able to continue with all the mitigation work in the communities and at the remarkable quality standard uh, and with only very remote guidance of the project of, of the Red Cross. Wow, that, that sounds uh, really interesting examples and also, uh, you know, the, the importance of having people trained on the ground to kind of take up. So that, that kind of leads me then, you know, to thinking of um, another question, you know, given the theme of this uh, International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction, you know, how important do you think or how can international cooperation, or how important is this to help, um, you know, work on nature-based solutions and to help reduce disaster risk and disaster losses in uh, some of these countries? Well, yes. Um, I think on that particular point, I, I think, of course, we're looking at different types of, when we look at nature-based solutions, it's a different scale. 
And so the incentive of international cooperation is on the one hand having partnerships between different countries um, and this kind of um, support that Anton was maybe referring to between um, funding support for disaster risk reduction and where it's been implemented in a, in a disaster context or for disaster risk reduction. But it also has, has a lot of, of transboundary implications. And so if we're looking at nature-based solutions for, say, flooding, we might be looking at watersheds that, that go across boundaries. So what are the international cooperation needs in that domain? Or if we're looking at drought in, in areas like the Sahel, of course, these are problems that, that transgress boundaries. And, and um, you know, in, in some cases, some of these uh, environmental crises or climate crises can, can lead to migrations and displacement across boundaries as well. So I think there's multiple layers to, to international cooperation for, for disaster risk reduction in general, and in particular on nature-based solutions, whether it's... it's um, you know, how we manage resources, it's for financing, it's for, for population movements. Um, and I think this is going to require new types of solutions as well. And, and, and I guess the humanitarian sector traditionally is more site-based where the disaster or crisis hits. And, and um, nature-based solutions takes us in different ways um, to looking at, at how some of our resources are managed across boundaries and how can we come together to to manage them sustainably. So um, I think that's both a challenge and, and an opportunity for us as a sector. If, if mm. I may add, uh, Natalie, you know, on, oh, yes. <laughs> on the, let's say on the basis of the two um, contexts that I have been referring to uh, before in Haiti and um, Honduras, there, um, uh, let's see the, the engagement of the Swiss Red Cross that, that was related, very much so related to disasters in Honduras in 1998 because of Mitch, um, the uh, cyclone Mitch, and uh, the hurricane Mitch, and in, um, in Haiti in 2010 because of the earthquake. So it was always a disaster, you know, that um, triggered a bit this um, support from the Swiss Red Cross as a participating national society to the national Red Cross society in country and triggered because um, because of those uh, large disasters they um, they triggered a lot of um, funds in in Switzerland that then could be used to to support uh, programs of of um, the uh, both national societies and you know from from humanitarian aid um, then the program was slightly um, shifted into um, reconstruction rehabilitation recovery and onto more developmental cooperation great yeah definitely um, it often does take a, a disaster to then start to work on on the prevention but it's really helpful to see how then you know new things can um, be undertaken to help prevent maybe uh, things get worse later on so I was wondering um, maybe uh, Nini um, if uh, you could give us your take on what would be some of at least from your side thinking if five key steps for the humanitarian sector as a whole to integrate uh, disaster risk reduction and nature-based solutions 
Yes, thanks. Thanks, Natalie. And, and I'll, um, yeah, I'm very happy to take that question. I guess I'll, I'll take it a bit from the intersection of, of DRR and NBS and where we're looking at kind of ecosystem-based disaster risk reduction solutions and how do we need to do things a bit differently in the humanitarian sector. Um, and I think a, an important starting point is, is a need to better understand climate and environmental data and, and what are um, the factors of climate and environmental degradation that we're facing? What are the climate change impacts? Uh, what are these drivers of environmental degradation? What are the main climate change impacts in the countries at large that we're working on and then further in the regions and specific communities? Um, and understanding that before um, disasters and crises. So what are these, these underlying factors of vulnerability in a sense in a country? And, and then during um, or just after a disaster, what is it that drove to the disaster? Were there some environmental factors behind that? And, and when we're in our response or emergency operations, how do we manage those natural resources in a way that that enables us to build back better and, and do no harm to the environment? And even further, to make sure that we manage those natural resources in a way that can um, protect our resilience in that and uh, in that particular situation and moving forward. Um, and so this type of, of information is, is, is quite new to the humanitarian sector and, and bringing that in before, during and after um, disasters and crises is, is a real shift in thinking and, and um, combining that then as well with the more typical disaster or risk maps that we use. And how is that combined and what are the, how does that come into humanitarian assessments and tools that we use? So I think that's an important um, starting point and, and, and a critical step to take. Um, and that brings me to the second one, which is related to that, is then the capacity to use that information and how do we uh, plan for and implement nature-based solutions as part of humanitarian work? Um, and, and do we mainstream or integrate that into the existing way of how we do things uh, and or do we bring external expertise on board and, and most likely it, it's a combination of both and Anton slightly alluded to that as well. And I think it's really critical because that was, of course means that once we have in country capacity, whatever happens, the capacity is there to bring nature-based solutions into how we manage disasters. Um, and that actually then ties to this third point I, I wanted to make, which is really that we need to be building on community and local needs, experiences and knowledge around natural resource management, um, specifically then applied in the humanitarian contexts. So, of course, wherever a disaster or crisis hits, um, people are living there, they are managing their resources. So how can we tap into that, that experience that's there and, and strengthen that with sometimes um, additional expertise or information and analysis, for example? Um, and then building on that, so once we, we have the data, we've got some capacity to use, analyze and apply it, and we're building on the local experiences and knowledge, then of course piloting and, and learning from nature-based solutions, in particular in key humanitarian sectors such as health, uh, food security and nutrition, shelter um, and, and water and sanitation. And so what does nature-based solutions look like in these domains that we most traditionally work in uh, for the humanitarian sector and, and um, whether we're looking at integrated water resource management or land restoration or, or sustainable agriculture, 
what does that mean specifically in, in humanitarian contexts and adapting some of our learning then as we go along. Um, and then finally, and, and that builds a bit before uh, on the previous steps, is that we will need new types of partnerships as humanitarian actors, all the way from the global level to national level, down to local level, um, looking at partnering with environmental um, experts from NGOs, from research institutes, from government, uh, similarly from, from the climate side of meteorological departments, etc., um, down to very local levels looking at other forest user groups or water user groups that we can um, partner with at really very local community level. Um, so I think that's that would be my five points, the data, the capacity, building on the community, piloting and learning in the key sectors and partnerships. Well, wow, that sounds like, uh, you know, really uh, key steps. I'm just wondering what are some of the, the challenges uh, you anticipate? Yeah, so, I mean, some of them, of course, have, have challenges in themselves. So access to data and use of data capacity are, are both, uh, you know, an important step and a challenge in their own right. Um, and in addition to those, I think there's a few really critical ones. I think time is really one that applies both to disaster risk reduction and nature-based solutions. And so humanitarian work is traditionally more short-term. It's responding um, to disasters and crises um, and the whole programming cycle, the financing for it, et cetera, is, is more in a short-term lens. While of course, if we're looking at resilience, this requires longer-term timescales. Um, and, and in particular, in terms of nature-based solutions, um, some, like I mentioned, can be shorter term, like sustainable agriculture. But if we're looking at restoring a landscape or a coastal area against storm surges or, or dr reducing drought, of course, we need longer timelines for that. Um, so time is, is a really key challenge. Scale is another one. So again, um, humanitarian work is usually community and site-specific um, responses, whilst there's building social and ecological resilience is, is at a larger scale. We're not looking at an individual community. We might be looking at watersheds or like we were discussing earlier, it might be even something transboundary. So it's a very different scale that, that requires quite significant shifts in, in how work is done. Um, and then finance, um, somewhat tied to, to in particular the time element. So finance traditionally for the humanitarian sector is is short-term disaster funding appeals, uh, post-disaster um, funding. Um, it's it's shorter term, it's often the larger amounts come after disaster has hit. So how do we shift that more towards disaster risk reduction and resilience building? Um, how do we merge with, with longer term needs for resilience, which more traditionally comes again from development finance or climate change finance? Um, which builds more long-term scenarios of climate change impacts and responses to those um, and nature-based solutions often are indeed requiring longer-term finance. Um, so, so those are some key challenges and, and also in terms of even disaster risk finance, disaster risk reduction finance, we are working, for example, on forecast-based financing, which includes looking at um, anticipating what are the needs for finance and reducing disasters before they happen and looking at, say, triggers for drought and having um, early action protocols where communities already decide that once drought hits, what do we invest in? Um, but even in those kind of models, what's the role of NBS? It's, it's often something we need to plan for and start implementing before disasters rather than 
than after. So um, these are some big, big challenges, um, but there's also opportunities in, in looking at how we can look at different types of finance mechanisms and what role is there for the private sector, the insurance uh, in, in um, helping to, to finance some DRR and, and nature-based solutions work specifically. Well, thank you, Nini. So it really sounds like, you know, there is maybe a need for a little bit of a shift in uh, in way of thinking about and undertaking uh, maybe some uh, humanitarian work and, and bridge maybe better um, with some of the, the development work um, to increase resilience over time. So as uh, Anton said, to, to reduce that need for, um, for disaster relief uh, in the long run. Um, I wonder if, uh, if Anton, you had anything you would like to, to add? Yes, um, I could. Um, um, actually, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real fan of nature-based solutions. And ever since I came across um, those soil bioengineering measures in Honduras at my first um, mission to Honduras with a Swiss Red Cross some 10 years ago. And um, for me, you know, Nature-based solutions, they often address many of the root causes of problems. For example, addressing causes of vulnerability, and hence they have a wide impact, wider than many of the more engineered approaches or gray measures. That's the beauty of it, and I like it very much. Oh, thank you, Anton. That's a, a great note to, to finish on. Uh, uh, Nini, any, any last final words? No, not I think, I mean, I think really the point that you were alluding to as, as well just a while ago is really that I think nature-based solutions is really, it's a practical way for us on the ground to start bridging climate, environment, development and humanitarian agendas for the common purpose of really increasing resilience of the most vulnerable, um, including to disasters. And and just as Anton was saying, it's it's something that, you know, provides more benefits in the long term. And it's something that I think in practice can will make us break some of these silos. Um, and I think it's a great opportunity for all of us in, in the humanitarian sector and, and beyond. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nini and Anton, for being our first guests on this podcast. It's been uh, really interesting to kind of learn some of your work and uh, thoughts on this. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Yes. You've just listened to Talks for Action, a podcast brought to you by the Partnership for Environment and Disaster Risk Reduction. If you are interested in learning more about nature-based solutions for disaster and climate resilience, please follow our free online course on www.peder.org forward slash MOOC. I repeat, www.peder.org org forward slash m o o c until next month for the next episode stay tuned <laughs>